There are times in our lives when the Lord seems distant and we can't really sense His presence. Now most of the time, this comes because we have drifted in some way or another. The easiest way for us to drift is through distraction that keeps us from Him and the things that He's called us to do. Uh, and that's easy enough to do because this world is just filled with distractions. I mean, think of some of the ways that we get distracted. We allow less important tasks or responsibilities to take the place of the most important. We allow the Lord and His work to take a back seat in our own personal pursuits. We allow other relationships to intrude upon our relationship with the Lord. We work diligently for our own well-being but neglect others and the work of the Lord. We strive harder to bring recognition or honor to ourselves than we do to the Lord, or we rush forward to new goals when we fail to finish what the Lord already asked us to do. And and we're all guilty of being distracted like this at, at various times. We get so caught up in doing good things that we neglect the best things. We get so caught up in urgent things that we neglect the important things. And when this happens, we begin to drift from the Lord. And many times we don't even really notice it until we've drifted further than we ever really thought that we would. And at that point, we have more or less become inactive in the work of God. And that's what happened with Israel. God had called a remnant of His people back to the land out of Babylon, out of exile. And they were to go back to their homeland and they were to rebuild really the nation. But they were to start with the temple. Those were His plans. That's what He had put into their hearts. But if you remember the story, they once they got back, they began to experience opposition. And the opposition basically forced them to stop. And they stopped, and then they more or less, they went on with their own life. They began to do their own things. And after time after time goes on, they have drifted really far from where they are supposed to be. They're not at all active in the work of the Lord. And so God sends someone with a message for them to help turn them back and revive the work that He had begun. So open your Bible to Haggai chapter 1, page 718. That's what we're looking at tonight. It's all part of our Ezra and Nehemiah series. Uh, when you find Haggai 1, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Haggai 1, it says, In the second year of King Darius, the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts, Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withheld the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I call for a drought on the land, and the mountains, and the grain, and the new wine, 
and the oil, and on whatever the ground brings forth, on men, on livestock, and all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts on the 24th day of the sixth month of the, of the, of the second year, King Darius. The title of the message tonight is Reviving the Work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come tonight, Lord. And Father, we come tonight with a desire to know you, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to be more of who you want us to be. Father, tonight we look at a passage where you sent a message for revival. And Lord, if we've come here tonight and we are in need of revival, use your word and your spirit together to stir us into action, to revive us to the work that you have called us. And Father, if we are here tonight and we are not in need of revival, but Lord, we are active and faithful in our service to you, let us take what we have learned tonight and let us apply it to our lives to ensure that we do not fall to a place of inactivity or lukewarmness, but that we keep the fire burning in our hearts, that we would always be fervent in spirit serving you. Father, let our church be a place where people were on fire for you, Lord. Be willing to do your will, whatever it was. And that, Lord, we would be out in our community doing your work. Seeking to save, uh, reach the lost, to restore the prodigals, to heal the broken hearts, to restore ruptured relationships. And all the things, God, that you want to see done in our midst. Have your way in our hearts and our lives. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, 16 years have passed since the laying of the foundation of the temple, and they've been forced to stop the work. In that 16 years, the people had settled down, built homes, gotten jobs, started families, and basically gone on with life apart from the work that God had called them to do. So to stir them back up to the work, God sends Haggai with a message for them to do. Now, something I wanted us to see, because I think it's so neat, is verse 12. Right In verse 12... Uh, Haggai has delivered the message, and Zerubbabel and the rem and Joshua and the remnant they they get up and they obey, right? So here they are. Haggai has come. He's preached that they need to get up and they need to start doing the work, and they get up and they start doing the work. And then after they start the work, Haggai brings the final message in this chapter: one, I'm with you, right? And after he's given them that message, the Lord stirs their heart. And I found that fascinating as I studied this message because we typically think about it working the other way, don't we? But I mean, when we talk about revival and we pray for revival, what do we pray for? We pray for hearts to be stirred and then people to get on and get active with the work. And yet, what we see here is that it works just the opposite. They hear the message, they know it's from the Lord their God, and so they get up and they begin to do the work. And it's only after they're reviving the work that God then begins to give them His presence and then He stirs their souls, stirs their hearts or stirs their spirits up within it. And, and I think that's interesting because when we talk about revivals of the past, we again, we think about it in terms of God stirring people and then the work goes on. But 
when you go deeper and look at the histories of revival, you typically you find that people were working actually long before God began to stir. Now take the day of Pentecost. That's the first great revival of the New Testament. What were they doing before the Lord sent the Holy Spirit that stirred everyone up? They were praying. Right now, think, well, that's praying and that's what they were doing. But what is the one thing Jesus said they were supposed to do? They were to pray and they were to wait. They were doing all of the work that they were supposed to do while they waited for the Spirit to come. Right when you think about the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards in New England. Right, we often we, we focus on his sermon, the sinners in the hand of an angry God, that as he preached that the Holy Spirit came down and brought deep conviction. And yet, before he preached that message, before that began to happen, when you read the history, he was active at work long before that. He, he was praying. He spent many hours in prayer and in fasting and in weeping and in crying out to the Lord. But even beyond that, sinners in the hand of the angry God, that's not the first sermon the man ever preached. Long before that sermon was preached and the first great awakening happened, guess what he was doing? He was praying. He was fasting. He was crying out. He was sharing the gospel. He was doing the work. He was pastoring. He was visiting people. He was doing all the things that needed to be done that he thought should be done. And then the Holy Spirit came and the revival happened. And I don't know that it's... I think, I'm going to say this. I don't know that I can prove it. Perfectly, because I don't know all about every revival in history. But from what I know, when we talk about the revival, we start at that moment that the, the, that outpouring, the stirring of the Spirit happens. But when you really study, there is always the work that is going on beforehand. There are people who are burdened. There are people who are praying. And there are people who are doing whatever it is they can. They are sharing the gospel. They are doing the work of God. They were trying their best to do what needed to be done. And then after they did the work, then that experience, that that stirring of their spirit came. So I think the lesson for us is that those who want revival will work for revival and then experience revival. But that those who want revival will, will first work for revival to do the things that we're supposed to do. And then we will experience that stirring of the Spirit. Uh, initially, this passage, I had six points. But it was going to take too long, so I combined some. And I think we have four now. Uh, four works that probably are not all-encompassing of all that we need to do. They're absolutely what we see in this text, and, and they are what I think you see if you were to look at all the revivals. You would find these four things active in the works that people were doing before the revivals came. So number one, we get in the Word. Again, we, we see that the message from the Lord came, the Word of the Lord in verse 1, came by Haggai the prophet. Verse 2 Thus, uh, thus speaks the word of the Lord of hosts, or thus speaks the Lord of hosts. Verse 3, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Verse 5, thus says the Lord. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, says the Lord of hosts. And then again in verse 13, I am with you, says the Lord. Right, so when God wanted to stir the people to revive the work, He sent someone with a message from Him. And all throughout this chapter, we see that the message that Haggai brought was a message from the Lord. Right? It wasn't his ideas, and it wasn't just a, 
a raw, 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 influential, you can do it kind of speech. No, he came and he brought a message from the Lord. Right? And we see in verse 12 that they recognized that this message was from the Lord. Right? Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the, of the people. Notice, they, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Right? And the words of the Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. Right? So what they said was, Haggai brought the message, but he's not the main one behind it. Indeed, this is the Lord God who has sent him to speak. So God used his word to fan into flames the embers of their devotion to him and his word. Because keep in mind, these people aren't in wicked sin. These people aren't in idolatrous sin. They have just grown lukewarm. They have at this point, they have been distracted. They have let other things become more important. And they have kind of picked up and behaved like the Laodiceans that were lukewarm. But they were not evil, wicked, often idolatry people. So the Lord... They had that, that, that ember in their heart and the Lord used his word to fan it into flames so they would jump up and they would do his work. God always works through the word to stir up revival in his people. Always. Again, revivals, when we talk about revivals, they begin, where we talk about our point of beginning is in a sermon. Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hand of an angry God. Peter on the day of Pentecost, Duncan Campbell preaching a message on, a, on an island. I mean, all of these revivals happened as the word was proclaimed. There was, again, stuff going on before, stuff that was going on in people's hearts. But the word was always central to what God was doing in his people. And it's always going to be that way. I mean, when you look through Old Testament, New Testament, old church, modern church, the one consistent thing is that God uses His Word in His people's life. That is the primary agent of guiding and instructing and just helping them in any way. So we have to be in the Word. Right? We have to be, I think we have to be where the Word is preached, but I think we also have to be in the Word in our personal private time. I mean, we have an advantage over the people in Haggai's day. We have an advantage over the people on the day of Pentecost. We largely even have an advantage over the people in the days of the first great awakening in that God's word is so easily attained. Every one of us that want a Bible, we have a Bible. Most likely we all have multiple Bibles. If you have a smartphone, there are multiple Multiple Bible apps you can download with, with all of the Bible, much less devotions, in any translation you want to use. All of that is accessible to us. You could even Google free Bible. And there will be a million responses. There are literally thousands of Christian organizations in the world that will send you a free Bible. If you go to their website and put your address in they will send it to you. Now, it may well be sent with someone bringing it to you to talk to you about Jesus, but you'll get one. Right? So we have that privilege. We have that opportunity. So what we need to do is be sure that we are prioritizing our time in the Word. Right? But it's not enough to just be in the Word. Right? We do have to be in the Word for the right reasons. Right? And I think this is important. Last week, maybe week before last, Beth Moore put on Twitter 
And she said, and I can't quote it exactly, but essentially what she said is that reading the Bible and being with God aren't necessarily the same things. That it is possible to read the Bible and never meet with God. And a lot of people got really up in arms because she was saying the Bible wasn't God's Word. But she reiterated multiple times the Bible is God's Word. But what she was saying is something that, that we know in a normal relationship. Have you ever been with someone and they talked and you never heard a word they said? It never registered. Evelyn looked at Jackie. Jackie, yeah? Jackie's got listening skill problems. Husbands are probably most famous for having selective hearing. But we've all done that, haven't we? We have been in a conversation with someone and our mind drifted off over here somewhere and they're still talking, but we don't, we don't take in anything that, they get, that we get from it. Right? It's the same with the Bible. Yes, I can read my Bible, my daily Bible reading, but that doesn't necessarily mean I get anything out of it. My mind can be distracted. I mean... Humans are, are pretty incredible thing, people in what we can do. I mean, we can sing songs and actually make the words come out of our mouth while we're thinking about something totally different. I mean, we can even speak words and not be involved in what's going on in the worship. Right? So we can surely read words and not get them into our lives. So what we have to do, it's not enough to, to read. But right? It's not enough to, to read to check a box. Well, today was my day and I read my Bible. Click. Right? It's not enough to read to try to establish our own righteousness. Well, I'm a better Christian than someone else because I read my Bible today. It's not enough to, to read to win an argument. Well, okay, I learned that now. I can go and really lay the smack down on this person over here and show them that I'm right and they're wrong. None of that is likely to stir up revival in our soul. Rather, what we need is we need to be in the Word so that we can meet with God. Right? That we can hear from Him. I mean, this is... God's Word. God speaks through His Word. He, through His Word, He challenges us. Through His Word, He equips us. Through His Word, He sanctifies us. Through His Word, He revives us. And so we need, we need to hear from God. But in order to really hear from God as we read the Bible, we need the Holy Spirit's help. There were a lot of verses, but I had to narrow it down to just a few that I like. Jesus said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. And He will bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. Right? The Holy Spirit is our primary teacher from the Word. Right? The Word is living and active, but it is the Holy Spirit that, that works and makes the Word living and active. That, that causes the Word to jump out and, and something to speak to us about an issue. I mean, if you ever... Read the Bible and read a verse you've read a thousand times, but on that day it just speaks to you in a new way. You understand it in a way you had never understood it before. Why did that happen? Because the Holy Spirit was teaching you, was working in you, in your life to reveal these things to you. Right? The Apostle Paul, he prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. And he goes on in that passage to pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal the hope of God's calling. The riches of God's inheritance in the saints. And the exceeding greatness of God's power towards us as believers. I mean, I, I, this is something. I pray this passage almost every day. In my own daily prayer in my life. Because I, I want to know the hope of God's calling. 
I want to know the riches of God's inheritance in us as his saints. And and I want to know the exceeding greatness of God's power towards me. But I'll never know that on my own. But I will never come to the place where I really grasp those things without the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. Right? And so we, we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Word and make it living and active in our lives. So to make our time in the Word more meaningful than our time in any other book, we, we need the Holy Spirit. And so before we read, we should take time and pray. Right? Not necessarily a big long prayer, but just a time committing that time to the Lord and asking for the Holy Spirit to come and open the Word to us. I pray this verse every day before I read my Bible. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. We That's what will make the time in the Word meaningful. That's what will use it to bring revival to our lives. It is the Holy Spirit that takes the Word and causes us to see it like they did and say, this is the Word of God. Now I need to change and do and act and believe differently. If we want to experience revival, we must do the work of revival. And that requires that we be in the Word. Secondly, we have to quit making excuses. Look at verse 2. It says, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, they were making excuses, essentially, about why they weren't doing the work of God. Now, we're not ever told why they felt now wasn't the time to do the work, just that they felt that now wasn't. And part of what I see in this is I think after 16 years of just the foundation being built, probably... I mean, conversations have happened, don't you imagine? I mean, even just think of our church. When something needs to be done, if it doesn't go on for a while, we just start having, well, are we going we to do anything about that? Are we going to take care of this? What do we think about that? Right? That's just a natural human conversation. So what happens when this happens and people start to begin to ask Jerubal, who is the one that's supposed to make it happen, or Joshua, the ones who are supposed to be the leaders, what do they begin to do probably? Hey, are we going to, do you think we'll ever get back to building the temple? I don't know, but... Now's not the time. Right now is not the time to be building the temple. Right? We don't know what their excuses they gave were, just that they were saying, not now, now's not the time. And that, was, that is seen as an excuse. And excuses are often a way to keep us from doing what we know we should do, but we aren't doing. I mean, isn't that what we give excuses for? Right? If I, I usually go to the gym and work out at... 5.30 in the morning, if I go a long time without working out, people say, I haven't seen you in a while at the gym. Right? And rather than saying, well, I've been sleeping in. I go open the gym, I go home and go to bed. I say, oh, well, I've been busy. Because, you know, I've got a lot of things going on at 5.30 in the morning that would keep me out of the gym. I have to get ready for it. Right? And so that's what we do. We're, well, I, we're making this excuse that it justifies why we're not doing what we really know we should be doing. Uh, we make excuses that make ourselves feel good. About what we aren't doing, but should be doing. This is why it's okay that I'm not doing what should be done. This is why we're not building the temple. This is why I'm not inviting this person to church. This is why I don't, I'm not finding and using my spiritual gift. This is why I'm not doing that. The Bible has a great story that illustrates God's attitude toward excuses. Turn with me to Luke 14. 
page 797. Start at verse 15. It says, Now, when one of those who sat at the table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and he sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, About a piece of ground, I must go to see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, therefore, and I cannot come. Now we'll stop there for now. Now, as we look at the parable, there's a couple of things that we need to understand. Right? First is, these are what I guess you'd call keys. First, the host in the story represents God. Clearly, we would think that would be the easiest way to understand it. That God is offering a banquet is kind of the picture here. Uh, the second is regarding banquets in this time. Because this, as they tell this story, they would have understood it a certain way. Probably different than we do. Right? And a banquet at this time, it wasn't a spur of the moment thing. Right? It wasn't like, hey, I bought a ham and it's bigger than for our family. You guys want to come over and eat with us. It wasn't something like that. It was something they planned out weeks or months in advance. And the invitations were very specific. So the master of the ceremonies, the one who's hosting the banquet, he sends a runner month or weeks or months in advance to Joe and Sharon. Are you guys going to come? Are you guys, you guys are invited and you guys are invited and you're invited and you're invited. And then they respond. right? They send someone back with an RSVP, yes, I'll be there or no, I can't. So the master of the banquet, he plans the size of the banquet based upon the number of people who say that they're coming. And then, because it is such a big deal, you can't just go to the store and buy the right animals. You have to, to get the right one. You have to cut it up. You have to do all of the things to get the food ready. That it's really, that there's not really such a be here Friday at 6 kind of thing. It is, and when it's on this day is when it's going to be, and when it's ready, we'll send a runner. And you're... You're basically, if you've accepted the invitation, your job on that day is more or less to get ready and just sit and wait for the, the runner to come say it's all ready. Right? So, the master of the banquets prepares this ceremony. All of the people he's inviting that we see responding, they have all accepted the master's invitation and said that they would come. Now, in my mind, this is a huge part of why this story is great and how it applies to the religious leaders and us. Because the religious leaders, they had already accepted God's invitations, hadn't they? Right? God had invited them to be a part of His kingdom. They had accepted that, and, and as religious leaders, they had devoted themselves to God. That's, the port, that's kind of the reason Jesus is talking to them. Some people have already said, yes, God, I'll go where you want me to go, and I'll do what you want me to do. And now God invites them, come on, it's time to do what you've said. Right? It relates to us because we have also accepted that invitation, haven't we? That on the, on the day that we were saved, the Holy Spirit reached out to us 
And He invited us to come to Jesus. Come and be saved. Come and have your sins forgiven. Come and be born again. And when we said yes, Lord, and we received Jesus, we said yes to that invitation. Right? So we are the people receiving the invitation in the story. And part of accepting the invitation is doing the work that God wants us to do. People in the story had accepted the invitation and they were actually supposed to come to the party when the, when the host called. The Pharisees likewise had accepted God's invitation and they were supposed to come when God called. You and I have accepted the Lord's invitation and so we are supposed to come when Jesus calls. So the host sends out the servant to remind everybody it's time to come. Come, for all things are ready. And they all begin to make excuses, it says, as to why they cannot come in verse 18. And there's three main reasons. right? And what it all boils down to is that they're all too busy to take part in the work of God, to call and accept this. The first one, he's too busy with possessions. He said, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it, and I ask that you have me excused. Right, instead of coming to the party, his heart was... Set upon his purchase, he would call, uh, that he could not answer the call of the feast until he had seen it. His desire to enjoy this piece of ground that he had bought was keeping him from answering the invitation of his Lord. Right now, think about how familiar that sounds in our day. How many, how many possessions come into our lives, and how many of those possessions keep us from answering? When our Lord calls. Things like houses and lands and cars and bikes and books and records and videos and radios and televisions and a host of, of other material things. That they, they too call to us, don't they? I heard a sermon and a guy was talking about his smartphone and he said, it calls to you, right? It beeps. Beep, beep. Pay attention to me. Acknowledge me. Look at me. And all of our worldly possessions, they do it in a similar way. They call to us. And if we're not careful, what we can do is we can get so busy with all of our worldly possessions that when the Master calls, come and do the work, we would say, no, I can't. I've got this new book. There's this new movie I want to see. I've got a car I need to mess with. I've got this. I've got that. I've got all of this stuff. And I'm spending my time here that I can't answer that call. Please have me excused from this time. Well, the second guy is also too busy. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask that you have me excused. Now, of course, oxen were plowing animals. And given the agrarian nature of society, it seems that this was a, a business investment. He was diligent in his business and he was diligent in his job. And that is commendable and something scripture teaches us to do. Now, the problem here isn't that his business was growing and that he needed five yoke of oxen. The problem is that his business was keeping him from being able to come to the feast. Right? That yes, he had this new oxen. Now, one thing about this that's interesting. A yoke of oxen, an ox, was essentially, I mean, it would be like a John Deere tractor. Someone that needed five new yoke of oxen is not likely the dude that's driving the yoke of oxen, plowing the fields, right? I mean, he, he owns... A field big enough to need five yoke of oxen. He's not doing it. Right? But he's overseeing 
his business. And because he's overseeing his business, it's keeping him from answering the master's call. And again, lots of folks are like this in our day. That they're too busy with work to be faithful with the work of God. And there's nothing wrong with working hard and being successful and making money and providing for our families and saving up for the future. All of that Scripture speaks to as being positive things. They only become a problem when they take precedence over our service and our devotion to Jesus. Right? When, when my work to provide for myself keeps me from my work for the Lord, at that point it becomes a problem. Right? And what a lot think is, well, I'll be faithful in my service to the Lord after I've retired. Right? I've done all of my other stuff and making my money and I'm set for the future. So then, then what I'm going to do is then I'll be faithful to the Lord. And there's two problems with that. On the one, we are, faith, we are unfaithful in the present. I mean, that's just the reality of it. We are unfaithful in the present, hoping to be faithful in the future. Secondly, I, I listened to a guy, he's a pastor, and he... He actually passed away just a few days ago, but last year he preached a sermon on getting old at, at the church he had started. He came in as a guest speaker. And one of the things he said that he had found out was that the stuff you do in the first half of your life, it prepares you for the last half of your life. And, and what he applied it to was specifically your service to Jesus. He said, if you say, well, I can't read my Bible now, but when I get older, I'll read my Bible what you're going to find is you've never built a habit of reading your Bible when you're younger. So when you're older and you have more time, you're not going to read your Bible any more than you do already. And when you're younger, if you're not serving Jesus, and that's not a part of your life and a priority in your life, when you get older and you have more time, you're still not going to be any more accurate. All you do is you carry those disciplines that you built in this time, you carry it into that. And if the disciplines you built were not Christ-centered and were not focused on serving Jesus, then the disciplines you live out in this time aren't going to be any different. You're just not going to be able to say, I'm too busy with work to do it. You're going to have other reasons. And so what we have to do is be careful. Be careful that we're not so busy with our business here that when the Master calls, we can't say, no, no, I, I can't go, I can't do that. Please have me excused. And then the final one, verse 20 says, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. And he is too busy with family. He's gotten married and he can't come to the feast. And that makes sense. He would want to spend extra time with his bride. But weddings in this day are a lot like feasts in this day. They didn't just run off to Vegas and get married. It was planned months or years in advance. At the time he received this invitation... He would have known about the wedding. And so he either accepted an invitation he never planned to go to. Or I don't know what else it could have been. But he knew. He knew he wasn't going to go when he accepted this. Um, and again, he put his family over the master's call. And that also is very common in our day. How many believers... Say they can't be faithful in their service to Christ because they're too busy with their kids' activities. Kids are busy nowadays, aren't they? I mean, kids are involved in 43 extracurricular activities and, and something has to give. It just does. Nobody can be involved in all those sorts of things and do all the stuff that needs to be done. But when something has to give, what is it that gives? Is it one of the 43 extracurricular activities or is it faithfulness 
service to Christ and His church. Well, it's not baseball, and it's not football, and it's not basketball, and it's not clubs. It's faithfulness to Christ and His church. And the reality is, none of that stuff is supposed to be more important than our faithfulness and our devotion and our service to Jesus and His church. Now they give all these excuses and, and look at verse 21 at the Master's response and we'll be through here. The servant came and reported these things to his Master and the Master of the house being angry said to the servant, Go quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. Bring here the poor and the maimed, the lame and the blind. The servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded. There's still room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges. Compel them to come. My house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those who are invited shall taste of my supper. Two things about this and we're going on. First, the master was not okay with those excuses. He found them to be lame and inadequate and insulting. They had accepted his invitation to come. And now he expected them to keep their words. What lesson does that teach us about the excuses we give about why we cannot be faithful in our service and our devotion to Christ and His church? Does Jesus listen to our excuses and go, well, that makes sense, I get that, yes, that's fine, no, do it later? Or does He still find them lame and inadequate and insulting? I believe He still finds them lame and inadequate and insulting. The second is they missed out on what the Master wanted them to have. There were good things that the Master wanted to give to them that they missed out on. And in the same way, there are good things that we miss out on. And the Master calls, and we begin to make excuses about why we cannot serve, we cannot go, we cannot do. We miss blessings and goodness and things that He wants to pour into our lives. If we want to experience revival... We have to do the work of revival. And that requires us to quit making excuses as to why we're not doing the work of God. Turn back to Haggai 1. Get in the Word. Quit making excuses. And reprioritize my life. Haggai, I fell out of my Bible. Hold on. Okay, here it is. We look at verse 3 and 4, we find out their excuses flowed out of wrong priorities. Word of the Lord, the prophet, word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Does this temple lie in ruins? Right? So here is what's going on. They're saying, Now is not the time to rebuild the house of the Lord, but they've rebuilt their house. Right? They're, they're all about really their life, they're here, they're there now in what they're doing. Now, they had neglected the work of God, but they had provided for themselves. Now, this isn't to say that providing for themselves was wrong. At some point, they were going to have to build a house. They would have to get jobs. They'd have to do all of these things. So, and again, all of that stuff the Bible speaks positively about. It's not wrong that they did this. It's wrong that they were neglecting the word of God or the work of God as they did this. Right? They focused on their stuff, on their priorities, on what was important to them. And all the while they were neglecting God's stuff, God's work, and what was important to Him. And all of their wrong priorities were not producing the things that they wanted. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. He who earns wages earns wages to put in bags with holes. But their wrong priorities weren't producing the results that they wanted. But no matter how much they planted, they never harvested enough. No matter how much they ate, they were never full. No matter how much they drank, they were never satisfied. No matter how much money they made, it was never enough. No matter how many clothes they put on, they were never good enough and it was never warm enough. No matter how much money they made, it was never enough. It was just never enough. Their desired results, or their wrong priorities weren't producing the desired results. And the reason is that God was not allowing that to happen. Look at what it says in verse 9. You looked for much, but indeed you came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house as in, that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, and whatever the ground brings forth, on the men and on livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Right? It was God that was frustrating all of their results and all that they did. They just, it was not producing what they hoped it would produce. As they neglected the work of God in favor of personal prosperity, God sent leanness into their lives. And the leanness, it seems, came in two ways. One, it did, God did prevent them from having enough. Verses 9 through 11 says that God caused droughts and He kept the, he kept the fruit from growing. He, he kept their, the work of their hands from being prosperous. Right? So there was all of this stuff that could have happened, but because their priorities were wrong, God dried up the rain, God dried up the dew, God kept the cows from producing, God kept the crops from producing, God kept their best labors from doing all the things that they wanted done. Second, God prevented them from being satisfied. Right? Some of the wording in verse 6 and 7, it, it indicates that rather than not, them not having enough physically, it's just that they weren't satisfied with what they had. They had food, and they had clothing, and they had money, and they had drink. But it was just, they were just never satisfied with it. They, no matter how much they ate, they never really felt what they should have felt. No matter how much they drank, they never really satisfied. But, and it was God sending emptiness into their lives. So they would not be satisfied with lesser things. And it would wake them up. And see how far they had drifted. And that they needed to turn from this sort of idolatry and turn to Him. And, and I wonder, I mean, you think about the, the second part, the dissatisfaction. Doesn't that describe like the American experience? Most prosperous nation on earth. And yet, no matter how much many of us have, we're never really satisfied. We, we always want that more. We yes, I have, I have this, but there's that, and I would love that. Why is it that we're never satisfied with what we have? Why are we always longing for the next new thing, the next big thing, the next relationship, the next toy, the next gadget, the next bank account thing that's bigger, better? Why? Why are we never satisfied with what we have? Is it possible? That our lack of satisfaction is God sending leanness into our life to keep us from being satisfied by that which is least so that we will seek Him and be satisfied in Him. I think it is. I think one of the reasons the, 
the church today is dissatisfied. American Christians are always looking for something new and something more and going and going and going is because our priorities are out of whack. And as we are trying to be satisfied in the world, God is saying, that will never satisfy you. That will never be enough. That will never take the fill the spot in your life that I'm meant to fill. And all of this really, it, it is a blessing from God. Right? Because how tragic to be satisfied with mere money when God offers us Himself. How tragic to be satisfied with an iPhone when God offers us Himself. How tragic to be satisfied with a nice house and cool stuff when God offers us Himself. So what this does is it requires us to recognize our priorities are out of whack and then reprioritize them. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Seek first. That's a first priority. The will of God, the work of God, the kingdom of God. That's what we're to seek first in our lives. And and we have, I think, in a lot of times, a fear. If I seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, I'll do without. If I seek God first, I'm going to be poor and I'm going to be miserable and I'll never really be happy and there'll never be any pleasure or joy in my life. And I think, isn't that a pitiful view of God? That we think God would have us seek Him first only to make our lives miserable. Only to cause us to do without. Only to send lack and misery into our lives. When scripture says that in his presence there is the fullness of joy. And there are pleasures forevermore. Wouldn't God be calling us to something better to seek him first? Yeah. And all these things shall be added to you. What are these things? Well, in the context of Matthew 6. It's about food and clothing, provision. It's all the stuff we need in life. The point is that seeking first the kingdom, it's not the path to a miserable existence. Rather, it is the path to life and life more abundantly that Jesus promised us. But that, that abundant life, it'll never be found in the wealth and stuff that this world provides. It'll only be found We seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. So if we want to experience revival, we must do the work of God or the work of revival. And that requires us to reprioritize our lives. And then finally, work with expectation. See in verse 7 and 8 that they were to go up to the mountain, bring food, build the temple, that He may take pleasure in it and be glorified in it. They were to go and do the work. I mean, that's what they were there for. I mean, they were like Esther for such a time as this. That's why they were in Israel, in Jerusalem at this time. It was time to obey the word from God. It was time to quit making excuses. It was time to reprioritize their lives. It was time to do the work. I love that verse 8 tells us as they did the work, God would take pleasure in it and God would be glorified by it. That is a huge part of doing the work of God. God takes pleasure when He sees us taking part in His work. God is always glorified when we take up the mantle and begin to do the things that He wants us to do. 
Right? God reaffirms this through to this very group of people through Zechariah. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. And they are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Right? I love that verse. That is such a great verse. Who despised the day of small things? Remember, the, to outer eyes, the temple, the new temple was going to be smaller, right? Also remember that they, at this point, even in Zechariah, all they had basically done was laid the foundation. It was a smaller temple and a small amount of work, and yet we know here they were taking up the plumb line. They were going to begin the work. And so was, he's like, I know you people think it's small and it's insignificant in your eyes, but this is how God sees it. That he, he rejoices to see the plumb line in your hand. Right? God was pleased to see them take up and do the work. We may think that what we do and whatever work God has called us to do, do His work in Gaiman, is a small thing. And it may be times where it doesn't seem like we accomplished much and we think we didn't accomplish anything. But God sees it all in a very different light. When we take up the, the plumb line, so to speak, we begin to do the work that God wants us to do. God is always pleased by our efforts, our obedience, God is always glorified. Because a watching world says, look at that. Look at that. They're rearranging their lives. They are reprioritizing themselves. They are doing something hard in the name of their God. Wow. They must really believe, they must really think their God is awesome. He sees our faithfulness. And He rejoices. In verse 13 and 14, we see two results of them taking up the work as God pours out two great blessings upon them. The first is God's presence. That He tells them in verse 13, He would be with them. Now, while God is omnipresent, uh, there is a difference between His omnipresence and the manifest presence of God. Right? There is a difference between the fact that God is always here and the times where we are aware of the fact that God is here. And I think Scripture makes this clear. Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it's He who loves me, and He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love Him, and notice, and manifest myself to Him. And if anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love Him, and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. Right? So those who love and obey Jesus will experience His presence in ways that others do not. I mean, that's a part of what it means that He will manifest Himself to them. It's the same with Jesus and the Father making their home with those who love and, and obey Him. Now, none of this, whether in Haggai or in John, it is talking about God's omnipresence. That's not what it means. It is referring to His manifest presence and experience of the fact that God is with us. But there are experiences of God's presence we miss out on when we are not active in the work of God. God told Joshua, go into the land and I will what? I will be with you. God, Jesus told the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations and lo, I am with you always. But there are experiences of God's presence that we miss when we're not doing the work of God. And then so there's God's presence and there's God's refreshing. It says in verse 14 that the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel, um, Joshua, and then all of the remnant. Stirred their spirits to do the work. He sent what we might call a revival in their midst. That brings us back to Ezra 1 
what God brought them back to the land to do. He, he stirred their spirits to go. And I thought, what would go with a, a stirred up spirit, do you think? I mean, what all happened? Was there a, a greater zeal? Was there greater hope? Greater excitement? Greater joy? Greater sense that what they were doing was significant and, and important? I think probably all of those to some degree. And it reminded me of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 where he promised that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. You know, there are times as we do the work of God where He He refreshes us, that He He strengthens us, He encourages us, He revives our hope, He stokes the fire of our zeal till we are really on fire to do the things that He wants us to do. We're overwhelmed at His love for us. We're suddenly filled with the joy of the Lord. Times when we feel spiritually stale and suddenly God breathes like a fresh breath into our lives and we know, man, we are talking to God as we pray. We're meeting with God as we read the Bible. Times when we feel far from God and then suddenly God grabs hold of us and just lets us know. He's right there and He's never left us. Times when we're down and discouraged and suddenly God just strengthens us and fills us with His presence and the idea that He's there. All, all of those and many more probably would be what it means, the time of refreshing that would come from the Lord, this stirring of the Spirit. But as we see here, this all comes as we do the work. It's interesting. I, I still, still am fascinated by the fact it doesn't come first. That if I was God... I would stir their spirits first and then they would get up and do the work. Because that's what, that's what makes the most sense to me. But God ain't me. He does things differently than I do. And I think what God is looking for is people who really want to be stirred up. Because we all like a, a good feeling, don't we? We all like a rousing speech that makes us feel good. That, whoa, yeah, wah! We all like that. But that don't mean we're going to do anything. So God's not out to just make us feel good. He's not out to just give us a rah-rah speech. God's out to empower us, to help us, to encourage us. The ones He wants to do that to are the ones who really want to do His work. So it seems that God waits until we start the work. And once we start the work... We experience His presence. We experience His revival, His refreshing. That's why we work with expectation. If you take off and you begin to do the work of God, you should just expect that at some point you're going to experience God in a new and fresh way. You should expect a time of refreshing to come from the Lord that He will stir your spirit, pour the blessings into our lives. If we want to experience revival, we have to do the work of revival and that requires us to actually work, to work with expectation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are